Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 162 of the Mandolin's Beer Podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc. Go to Acoustic Disc's website now, AcousticDisc.com, and you can check out their brand new releases. Uh, the Tony Rice Unit, a beautiful New Year's Eve. It's got Jimmy Goudreau on mandolin and uh, harmony vocals. It's live at the Birchmere from 1231.89. It is stellar. And uh, also the Acoustic Disc podcast, Acoustic Encounters. David Grisman and Danny Barnes discuss the DGQ20, and it's part one, so you want to go over there and sign up for their email list. You get the treat of the week now where they send you a free MP3 once a week, so go to AcousticDisc.com and sign up for that today. And Grace designed some of the best preamps that you can plug an acoustic instrument into. Uh, when you look at the stage of some of your favorite bands, if you look uh, at what they're plugging in for DIs, there's a good chance you're going to see those silver or black preamps. They sound incredible. Go to gracedesign.com today. How's everybody doing? Hope you're doing well. Got a little bit of the crud here. Please excuse my my voice. I'm trying to make it through these few minutes here so I can go lay back down and take a nap. Um, this episode is with Stephen Mojan, and Stephen is just a great guy, and, and uh, the information in this podcast is invaluable. So uh, he's got one of my favorite 10 minute a day actually talks about it before we get to the 10 minute a day question, but just one of my new favorite ways to listen to music. Uh, so be sure to check that out. Um, yeah. And anyway, let's get into the sponsors here. Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass and old time and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. The best lineup of mandolin instructors, in my opinion. You got Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, Chad Manning, Ian Curry, everything from that Shoro and jazz to beginner stuff. It's got it all. It's even got a new course with Joe K. Walsh coming out here soon. And the best part is Peghead Nation is going to give you your first month for free if you go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code, all one word, Mandolin Beer at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Ear Trumpet Labs. Ear Trumpet Labs hand builds microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. Pava Mandolins. Pava dedicated to building for the impassioned player right in Austin, Texas. My buddy Roger Simonoff and Straight Up Strings and Roger's Incredible Books. Now till the end of 2022, he's doing a special 10% off Mandolins and Beer special for books and strings. That's right. If you're a Mandolins and Beer podcast listener, use the code, all caps, all one word, MANDOBEER, when you check out and you get a 10% discount. And you can use that promo code every time you order until December 31st, 2022. And that's just not mandolin strings. It's also banjo, guitar, and resonator strings. So go to straightupstrings.com now. Order your strings. Order your incredible books. Use the promo code MANDOBEER, all one word, all caps, to get a 10% discount at checkout. And be sure to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. 
and Elderly Instruments. Elderly is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced to beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. They're in their 50th year. They're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at elderly.com. You can even give them a call at 517-372-7880. They are great people. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, Thank you, by the way, for um, making this one of the top 5% shared Spotify podcasts. That is that is wild to me. That's Spotify's got every podcast out there and and to see those numbers it's so I want to thank everybody who shared the word and and who listens every week. So thank you so much. Let's get into this uh episode with Stephen Mojan. Going to lead into the uh podcast with a track from his 2020 album Ordinary Soul. And well, he doesn't play mandolin on it. There's some incredible mandolin playing and some great songs. So be sure to check that out. Go to stevenmochin.com for more information on Steven. And let's get into this episode. Cheers, everybody. I'm so tired of only knowing where I am, but never going where I am. All right, now it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Stephen Mojan. Stephen, how's it going? It is great. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad glad to have you here. Thank you so much for doing it. I know you're uh, super busy. I, I spent some time at the uh, Dark Shadow recording uh, room at IBMA which was the room to be in this year, I think. You uh-huh. had all the shows. <laughs> yeah. You know, it turned out great. We had amazing partners. Our buddies, the Henhouse Prowlers, who are on our label, joined with us um, through their nonprofit, Bluegrass Ambassadors, and, and we co-sponsored the room for the whole week. And uh, we could not have done it without them. And uh, we're already making, we've already made plans to do it again. And um, looking forward to what we might showcase next year oh that's fantastic it was a blast you guys had the great vibe and they had the uh the one night they had the uh, chicago style food there (laughs) it was fantastic yeah totally that was international night and uh of course the prowlers are from chicago and john the bass player his wife um owns and runs a catering company and um makes food that sells in whole foods and stuff uh, vegan. Those little Chicago dogs were vegan. Oh, get out of here! Really? They were delicious. They I, were I didn't delicious. know. <laughs> I didn't either. Yeah, yeah. I ate about three of them before they told me they were vegan, and I just kept eating them. <laughs> <laughs> you had just mentioned that, um, uh, w- along with Dark Shadow Recording, which we'll definitely dive into a little bit more. But you and Ned Lubarecki, the uh, Nedski and Mojo are getting ready to do some more recording as well. Yeah, well, we've sort of, we've had half an album in the can for about eight years at this point, and we kind of just keep kicking the tires about when to put it out and what to do with it. And I think we are, um, we're, we're just kind of ready to put out a couple singles, and um, we're actually starting to book a bit of a tour in, um, Let's see, when is it? I guess it's the very end of January and February next year where, you know, we specialize in house concerts, um, 
we don't really do the club scene all that much, but we're not super opposed to it. Our specialty is a tight room with a lot of people and, and the size of a room that works, um, where folks get to hear Ned's all Ned's commentary, even when he's off mic, because that really is, that is about half the show. Um, it's, it's fun. We, we bring our fishman uh, stick things, which is what we're using in that room, but we bring those everywhere we go and set up. So it does feel like a real concert, even when we do all these house concert kind of things, but we just, we love doing that. It's a lot of fun. And he's such a pleasure to tour with and to make music with. We've been doing it since 2009, actually on and off. Yeah. It started the year my son was born. Cause I saw that I had a chunk of time in my calendar and I had some diapers to buy. <laughs> <laughs> you guys both have great personalities too, which is uh which is another thing that's great about those house shows, you know. I think that's a big thing. Like house concerts are always great to see, but if somebody's got a really dry personality, it's it's kind of a weird thing sometimes because it's so intimate and then that dead time between songs is just uh I would imagine there's not a whole lot of dead dead air between tunes with you two. <laughs> oh man, there's just there's too much laughing. It's sometimes it's difficult to even get on to the next song because somebody says something and and then the audience gets involved and yeah, it's it's a good time and I really do I really enjoy getting to do those kind of shows. So yeah, we're we're in the process of booking some stuff. Um, I don't know exactly where we're heading yet, uh, but. Um, as details come in, I'll have those up on my website and so on and so forth. Great website, by the way. I'm very jealous of how good your website looks. <laughs> it's it's really laid out well. And I guess I didn't really realize. I mean, I knew you, you you really are busy. I mean, just bumping into you a couple times at IBMA and, and you know, seeing you play with Sam and knowing the record label. But you've got a whole, a whole host of things. You've got True Fire course. You've got... Um, the, the really cool thing on your website was a really cool, like harmony vocal yeah. course, which is a really neat. Yeah. That is actually the reason our label started, uh, was to put out that pair of CDs a long, long time ago. I think it was 08, somewhere in there. Um, we had some, some pals that kept asking me to make them a little tape of, of a harmony part so they could learn something. And I finally, I had this idea for a while to, to put together a whole package that way with co some common jam songs. And um, I just couldn't really afford to do it. You know, I was, didn't have a lot of things uh, totally dialed in at that point as far as the label was concerned, of course, and even the studio space and whatnot. And uh, I just couldn't afford to put that kind of thing out. And I had a, uh, another pal come to me and say, hey, I really want this project. I'll pay for it. And you pay me back when it, when you get the money and, um, and, and we'll put it out and get it out to the world. And I was really tickled when it took off. Um, you know, let's be honest, instructional materials don't sell that much, but this project got into some cool places. I know they had, they were using it in, at the Berkeley school of music for a while. I don't know if they still are, I know they had they were using it over to ETSU, um, and I've had people all across the country come up to me and say, "Hey, I got your CDs. I learned those tunes. It really helped my harmony singing." And that that just does a, a world of good to me because I I feel like of all the things I am, 
a teacher is is the primary best thing I do. That's that's what I do best, and uh, to get recognized as a teacher uh, is is great. I really love that. Well, two things that um, Sam Bush, when I've had him on the podcast twice now, he has brought you up two separate occasions. And the one tying most into what we're talking about now was when he just did this last album, was working on the vocals. And he said Mm -hmm. you were the big, big help in the vocal department for him. And um, I didn't realize you were uh, so schooled in vocal work as you are. And he had nothing but rave reviews to say about that. Uh Well, I appreciate that. Uh, it's been a pleasure working with Sam uh, in the studio and on stage. And not all employers want to hear anything about what their employees have to say about <laughs> much of anything. <laughs> sure. But but he's not that way. Um, and when he found out that I had a, a vocal music degree, I was a music teacher for a few years before I moved to Nashville. I taught middle school and high school choir, and I directed the musicals and, and did all that kind of stuff. Um, sang all kinds of music when I was in college alongside playing in a bluegrass band. And uh, anyways, when I got the gig, he just started asking me little things here and there about, hey, I'm having trouble hitting this note. How do I do it? And just through guidance over the years, we have a, a cool, we've worked together long enough that he can hit, a, you know, some squirrely note that he, that didn't come out right and just look over at me on stage and he knows you know, it's like he's he's a, telling me what what the issue was, so he fixes it for the next one. Um, it's good. It's a good long term. I've been with him since '06, so uh, yeah, 16 years now. Oh yeah, I, what I was going to say was this this newest album, the Hartford tribute. I really think it's Sam's best vocal performance because um, it really hits a few ranges of his of his voice. You know, the lower the lower end yeah. kind of the Harford stuff. And yeah, it was really yep. cool to, to hear him, yeah. you know, mention that you were a big part of that. So, well, I was sort of, um, fundamental way because we've worked so much together and he knows, he knows what I'm looking for out of a vocal at this point. I was really heavy duty on in on his vocals on the circles around me record. And uh, I was in there when he cut almost, almost every note. Uh, this the Hartford record. I wasn't part of any of it except the the um, Radio John song, but all of the stuff that we've worked on over the years, he you know he would come back. He'd give me a call coming back from the studio saying, "Hey, I rem- I was doing this and I remember to do what you told me there, and I think we got it dialed in, you know that kind of stuff." So, yeah, that's pretty cool. How did you get into bluegrass? You're not originally from from the South. You're from the Northeast. I'm from Massachusetts, the uh, the epicenter of bluegrass, don't you know? <laughs> Although now, now with all the Berkeley kids, <laughs> it's got quite the scene, but... It is, but from where I'm from, Boston might as well be Mars. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like my parents do would not go to Boston. We would never go down there. Uh, I'm from the hill towns. In fact, we had more cows than, than people in the area that I grew up. Uh, very much like upstate New York, bordering on upstate New York. Um, I wasn't quite that far west, but um, little town of Asheville, Massachusetts, near Northampton, Amherst. You might have heard of um, like Mount Holyoke College and Smith College and Hampshire College. All of those are real close to where I grew up. And um, 
beautiful area up there, really nice and uh, and pretty quiet. My dad just one one day out of the blue decided he was going to play guitar, and then some pals of his took him to a little jam session, and they were playing classic country and essentially bluegrass. Um, and that developed it, through the hill towns. Some of these people would would get together on the regular, and then they'd have all weekend kind of picks where where you know there's a bunch of farmers that were involved in this, and they'd they'd have a chunk of field set aside and people would bring their campers and it was ex exactly like a bluegrass festival with no stage show but everybody would bring tons of food and we'd have big community meals and there'd be you know five or six different jam sessions going on and that was the way i grew up it was cool and we finally did end up going to some actual bluegrass festivals by the time i was about uh eight or nine we were going to festivals every weekend in the summer um that was just kind of what we did and uh, my folks just got into it hardcore. And it was cool because I got to be around at a time where, um, you know, I saw Bill Monroe play. Not only did I see Bill Monroe play, but when I was 12, he was hosting a workshop at the Peaceful Valley Bluegrass Festival in Shinhopple, New York, which was an old, I think it was a cauliflower, thousand acre cauliflower farm. And they just had a giant festival in this field. And it was a huge festival. I mean, their typical lineup was, you know, Bill Monroe, Osborne Brothers, Jim and Jesse, on and on, Bluegrass Cardinals. Anybody you could think of, they were playing at that festival. It was huge. Anyways, Monroe was doing a workshop in this little uh, building just to the side of the stage. And it was kind of a haul to get from the stage down to where we were camped. And so I already had my mandolin with me. I was 12. And, um, and I'd, I'd not been playing off too awful long at that point. Um, I think I'd gotten the mandolin that Christmas before. So my dad and I were just sort of hanging out, killing time. We'd gone up to see a show and then we were just waiting for this, this workshop to start. So in typical, um, fashion of my father, we were extremely early and we just walked into the building and nobody was there. So we just sort of sat down all of a sudden Bill Monroe walks in. And he looks at me and I'm holding this little A model chipboard mandolin case. And he says, Oh, what have you got there? And so I, uh, I flopped it up on the table. I didn't think anything of it, flopped it up on the table, hit the latches and just handed it to him. And he played my mandolin for the entire workshop. Whoa. Yeah. Um, later, later got him to sign that particular mandolin. I still have it. It's this little Kentucky A model beginner. You know, I don't know what on earth, motivated him to to keep playing it my dad later told me all the people in the room were really irritated because they really wanted to see his old one <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh but you know for a 12 year old to see bill monroe playing your mandolin and and knowing that hey those sounds are in there you know that's that's a pretty good motivator yeah wow that's a yeah. great story yeah it's pretty cool i got a picture i got a picture here in the studio um of, of that day and then i've got one from it was about two or three months later we saw him up at thomas point beach in maine and i got another picture that's where he actually signed the mandolin um but yeah he's he still got it and that that was my son's first mandolin when he started messing around with it yeah so we still have it here at the house yep <laughs> oh man yeah and your son plays in that um did he play was he playing bass or i know he played in the band with uh wyatt and yeah the yeah 
He did, yeah. He um he picked up bass early this year actually. He um he goes to a private school and they've got um they have a praise band. They don't have much in the way of music, which is kind of weird to be in Music City, but they do have this praise band that they have and um and he was playing piano in it in the fall semester. But he was irritated because there was no bass. So we got him a, a, an electric bass over Christmas that could be his own. Um, and he started playing that at school uh, and, you know, charting tunes and learning songs and, and whatnot. And then the summer rolled around. I had a chance to teach again at the, um, I'm going to get this wrong, Ozark, OFAM, oh, oh, Ozark Folk and Mountain Music is the organization they ha have a um bluegrass a youth bluegrass band camp uh sorry there's just a lot to put together there so they have this and and i i taught at it last year and this year what they do is um they they put they just kids sign up from all over the country there was kids from arizona and california um north carolina and chicago and this thing is in Branson um, and it's out on this beautiful farm. Um, they just take all the kids. They randomly assign them to bands unless the kids come in as a band. And then they work with a band coach for the entire week. They have private lessons with some of the instructors. And then I acted as like the, the uh, grand Pumbaa of coaches. And I would go to each of the bands as they were working, fine tune some details, offer them some other things. Anyways, the first year, uh, my family joined me, but just to hang out. And then um, this year, Sammy wanted to go and participate. And so I said, you know, as we're signing up, I said, well, what are you going to play? Because he plays some mandolin, he plays some guitar. He hasn't really devoted to any of those yet, but he's got a great ear. And um, he said, uh, he wants to play bass. And I said, well, you know, this camp is totally bluegrass old time. If you're going to play, you got to play upright. Said, yeah, yeah, I know. So, <laughs> so he started playing bass in the summer, and then later on, he got the call from Wyatt Ellis, who I actually I gave Wyatt a few voice lessons during the pandemic online, and uh, got to know his mom and um, and such. So, when they found out Sammy was playing bass, she reached out and said, "Hey, we got a couple little gigs that we're trying to put together. Would he be interested?" And, and that's how that all happened. Well, they sounded great. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fun little bunch. I really wish they all lived closer to each other so they could play a little bit more. Uh, but everyone's spread out. The two of the boys were from uh, Georgia. No. Florida. Florida, actually. Yeah. And then um, two from Tennessee, but east and middle. And then one from Chicago on that gig. So... You know, it's all kind of a throw together thing, but, uh, but it's been fun and it's been really a good educational thing for the kids because all of them have grown up being kind of the star of the show and not really having an opportunity to learn what it takes to make somebody else sound good. And of course, that's the, the core of what we do in, in music. 90% of your time is spent making everyone else sound good. Uh, at least it ought to be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what you hear about all the best musicians. You know, when I, I did a Tony Rice tribute episode and they, I mean, everybody knows how great Tony Rice was as a guitar player, but every mandolin player that I interviewed 
talked about how well Tony made them play when it was their time to take a break. They said it was like, you know, being backed up by, you know, just the, the best backing musician you've ever heard supporting you. And I think, you know, that's that's what makes the best players stand out. Absolutely. I mean, I feel that same way playing with Sam. Every time I step up to take a solo, it's all just right there. The time and the groove, it's just all right there. And all I have to do is play something nice. You know, I don't have to struggle and create the timing for the whole band. And unfortunately, a lot of a lot of times uh, when folks aren't working well together, that's what you see. Um, it's like everybody's got blinders on and they're all pulling in slightly different directions. And, um, you know, but, but folks that are really living for the unity of sound and making whoever's the solo at that moment, whether it's the lead vocal or the chorus or uh, an, in- an instrument solo, making that sound as good as possible, being a good foundation for all that, that's really where the great music comes. And you offer band coaching. People can go to your website, by the way, which is um, one of the things I have on the list here to talk about. So this works out great to uh, to be discussing it now. So if people want to get in touch with you and learn some of these secrets, I mean, I mean, you play in, you know, just one of the best live bands that I I see every time I see you guys. I'm just blown away by how great you guys are live. You know, so people can get a piece of that right from you on your website. Yeah, for sure. I've. Um back and forth with teaching uh, as time allows this summer was just totally insane i was out a ton with sam and i made four records this year which is the most i've ever done in in a single year uh it doesn't sound like much but when you're talking the pre-production and then all the the you know tracking stuff and editing and mixing and all the label end of things as i'm touring we toured um this was actually the second busiest year that i've had in the band uh, so it's all good but it was just kind of crazy so i disabled some of the teaching things i just stopped taking students for a while because i just don't i don't have time um but in the spring i'm probably going to open some more of that up and as the holiday season comes through i have been doing a few band coachings with some family bands some longtime clients that check in with me every now and again to see if I can, if they can squeeze in a, a shot. Um, sometimes it's live. Uh, oftentimes now with the band coaching, it works basically just as well to do it online. Uh, and that certainly allows for, for people from remote places to make it more feasible. Um, when I do it in person, I do a minimum of four hours to really make sure we dig in and, and get a lot of stuff. And that's a lot for, uh, depends on the band. Sometimes the younger ones, that's too much, but, um, but there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about and all of us can be better musicians and hearing someone outside the band pointing at the things that you're doing really well and then helping you navigate the things you could do better. Um, that, that could really help in any situation. And I really wish I could have had that service when I was learning to play. I had some great, uh, bandmates, some older guys that got me into playing and they were wonderful, but it would have been great to have one outside voice who actually knew what they were talking about to, uh, not, you know, not, not the crazy uncle that steps in and says, ah, you need to do old slew foot. Um, not, not that guy, but somebody that really knows what's going on to be able to, to help you navigate all that stuff and talk you through it. 
Looking back on some of the advice that you've gotten, uh, you know, do you have one piece that kind of rings in, you know, in your, in your brain, be it playing or, or, or anything professionally music wise? Yeah. Um, two, two things, uh, two things that really pop out immediately. Number one, uh, I had a really great college experience as a voice major at the university of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, there was a lot of great support and I was, I could I barely could read music when I entered that program. So I was really, you know, I was leaning heavy on my ears and it was a miracle. I was able to get into the chamber choir, which was a 40 voice audition only group and uh, really high end stuff. I mean, when we'd get into a new space, we would sing chords until the overtones would sing out in the ceiling. Uh, they would have to be that in tune. So really heavy duty, hardcore. I can't believe I was even in that group. That director said many, many times, one of his favorite catchphrases was, listen more than you sing. And it doesn't mean don't sing. It just means listen more. And I thought, you know, for even everything I do now, in, in all the band coaching things, it goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago. If you're listening more than you're playing, your playing will be, will be so much better because of that, because you will be informed by what's happening and you'll, you'll allow yourself to get out of your own bubble and exist within the greater bubble of the band. And that's something I've, I've taken with me always. And, uh, and I think that's, it's one of the reasons I've been able to get good gigs and keep good gigs, uh, because I play that person's music. I'm listening always, and I'm trying to make everybody else sound better in, in you know, as much as I can. And, uh, you know, I, that's just turned out to be a, a pretty good piece of advice. I think the other one is when I started with Sam, um, I didn't know anything about how to take a long extended jam solo, um, where you have to just play for a while. I didn't know a thing about that. I mean, that's, that ain't, that ain't the way Monroe did it. <laughs> right, you know? right. Right. And you know, I have, I have sung classical music. I have sung some jazz and, uh, you know, big band style swing music, all kinds of stuff. Um, and I know lots about theory and all that, but you, you get the guitar in your hands and you suddenly, all right, you got to play over eight for the next couple minutes. Uh, over a and and there's no rules well that's terrifying let me just tell you it's terrifying when there's no you know so you sort of have to create rules for yourself to figure out how to play something that just doesn't sound like you're going blah, 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 because you know anybody could do that but that gets real boring real quick so trying to figure out all right on this solo I'm going to really start small. I'm going to play really long notes. I'm going to try to sequence some notes. All right, in this section, I'm going to go to this part of the neck and I'm going to try to say something funny. Um, any of those kind of things, just setting yourself up for that. Well, as I was working through that, and I, after 16 years, I still don't feel like I've got a great grasp on it, um, but I feel competent, but not always confident. <laughs> um, <laughs> But but Sam told me a great thing. He was working a long time ago with uh, 
gosh, I forget what band it was. It might have been Lyle. Or it might have been even back to Leon. I can't remember. There was a harmonica player in the band. And they were just going toe-to-toe one night, trading licks and trading riffs. And they got done with this song, and the harmonica player chewed him out. He was absolutely ripped. And Sam's like, what? I thought we were doing good. And the harmonica player said, man, I got to breathe. You're going to breathe in your solos. <laughs> Sam, Sam told me about that because that at that moment changed the way he played. Thinking about how you breathe in your solo. Right? And that's not something that we ever do when we're playing Molly and Tenbrook's at whatever BPM. You know, we just, we don't tend to do that. But when you listen to the really great players play, quite often there is a breath. It might not be a long breath, but it, you know, there is some sort of lift and it, it changes the way that you think about playing a solo because then you're more having a conversation. You say something, you pause, and then you say something else. So those are my two things. Listen more than listen more than you play and breathe. Perfect. Now, what brought you you were going to school and, and you started on mandolin. I mean, obviously you're you're the guitar player in Sam's band, just a fantastic guitar player. What brought you to Nashville or or to playing music full time? Well, I actually started on guitar. And then I added mandolin because everybody around me was playing guitar. So I, I switched over to mandolin when I was about 12. And I was primary mandolin until I moved to Nashville. The truth is, I got a, I got a job. I got a job playing music. And um, I was teaching full-time up in Orange, Massachusetts. I was middle school and high school choir director. And I got this offer. I'd come down to IBMA in the fall because I wanted to try to figure out a way to get some bluegrass stuff into my classroom teaching as a music teacher. And just, I don't know, I don't know exactly what I was hoping to accomplish, but, um, it didn't work because <laughs> I, cause I, cause I got a gig. Um, um, I reconnected with Becky Buller who I had met earlier in about 97. We actually met, I was going to do my master's down at ETSU. And anyways, well, I came down for a visit in the summer they they hooked up a jam session for me and she was in that jam session um so fast forward to 2001 i ran into her at ibma in louisville and we jammed and and hung out and it was it was great uh she introduced me to a lot of great players that weekend that i didn't know um and and then later on in i guess it was in the early part of the year, January, maybe I got a chance to audition for the group she was playing for at that time, who was looking for a mandolin player. That was Valerie Smith and was hired on mandolin. And as soon as I got on the bus, I was switched to guitar. <laughs> uh, they had a few, a few things going on. And anyways, um, and I was with Valerie for about a year and a half and then, uh, moved on. But the only reason I moved to Nashville was that I had a gig um and the the school that i was teaching at um they really didn't want to see me go but they they actually it was their idea they offered me a um oh gosh what do you call that uh 
Like a sabbatical? Sabbatical. There you go. They offered me a, a one-year sabbatical and said, hey, go go try that out. Um, your job will be waiting for you, you know, in a year if you want to come back, which was totally amazing after only being, you know, I'd only taught there for three years, but it was a great school, great, uh, fantastic superintendent, and they were very pro-music up there, which is something you just don't see a lot of. They saw the value in a good music program, and that's that's really it's so important in the public schools. But anyways, you know, I had this safety net of, well, that's still there. If everything goes south, I'll just come back. And I had a gig, so I moved. I was 25 and single, and there wasn't really any a good reason to say no. And then, you know, when I got down and I got to playing and playing with some better musicians, and it really improved my skill level. You know how that is. You play with people that are better than you are, you get better. And... Um, just being exposed to the mountain of amazing musicians in this town here in Nashville. I just never wanted to leave. Um, that was, that was the thing. And, um, it wasn't that I was really attached to Nashville. It was more the people who were here. It's, it's really amazing to me, like, especially, you know, when you go to IBMA or when I go to Nashville and, and hang out with some of the mandolin players that I've, you know, that I know and have gotten to know through this podcast is, you know, like anytime you think you're a good player or you think you've heard good players and you go to Nashville and you're like, whoa, <laughs> like it is, yeah, it's wild. And that's, that's true across music. Uh, you can find the, the biggest hot shot of whatever style on whatever instrument and then scroll across the video of them playing with somebody else on YouTube that makes them look like they're a beginner. That's just, that's how, that's how it goes. There's always more. And I mean, I guess that's the cool part because there's always more. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't want to think that I knew it all. That would be weird. I'm, I don't function in that environment. I have to have some sort of growth. I'm a dangling carrot kind of person. There has to be something that I can, that I can reach for, or I'm just not interested in that thing anymore. Uh, and, and that's been a, you know, interesting personal struggle for me. And that's one of the reasons we've ramped up our label. Cause I, I want to, I want to go after bigger and better and more and, um, you know, keep our, keep our artists moving in a forward direction and try to achieve more and grow them as a brand and grow our brand and try to help each other uh, grow together. That's really interesting to me. And um, I don't know, that's the thing you see in music. You just, you never know at all. And the greatest, um, oh gosh, that, oh man, there was a famous cellist that, he was 94 and still practicing six hours a day. And, and someone asked him why. And he, he said, well, I think I'm starting to make some progress. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And that's, well, that's it. I mean, if you truly love the instrument, you want to make it sound different ways. And, uh, and there's, there's just so much to learn. And there's so many that already have it figured out. And that can be discouraging sometimes, but, uh, you know, I think figuring out what where you are in that is is a good thing. You know, though, it's it, what I find really hard, uh, especially in this genre of music. What I find really heartening is 
speaking to people like you know sam or, or like jake jolliff who's uh, is, is a great example i think too because that guy you know i mean when anybody watches his videos they're just like whoa and that guy's still practicing every day and still working at something as in all the greats are no matter what yeah. age the ones who who stay where they are and keep moving forward is it isn't because they're resting on their laurels you know what i mean it's because they're putting in the work every day to be better well, yeah. Um, long time ago, I was uh, I was working at a college doing a program out there, and it occurred to me as I had students come through, I just had this thought one day: I would take a band full of hardworking individuals over a band of talented individuals any day of the week. And I say that because a lot of times what you see with folks that are just naturally talented and i've been guilty of this myself um just you're good enough at something and you don't push yourself to be better or you're already you come in a little ahead of everybody else so you can kind of chill but while you're chilling everybody's busting their butt and they suddenly rocket past you and uh and, and that's the thing. It's, I think the greatest players are maybe not the ta most talented. They certainly had some talent somewhere, but they were so driven to be good at this instrument or this vocal part or whatever it is they're good at that they spent more time than you did. That's it. I, I firmly believe that's it. If someone goes and practices, you know, six or eight hours a day, real actual practice focus practice not noodling on their instrument they can't help but to get better absolutely right yeah, i any mean focused and, any focused practice on this this you know any repetitive focus practice is going to lead to results i think that's yeah it has to well i i was kind of laugh my my dad um he's an amateur guitar player and he always gets frustrated that he's not better and he's geez i'd give anything to be as good as you are i said well all you got to do is practice. <laughs> you give anything with the time to practice, right. you know? Right. Uh, and that's, that's the thing. It's uh, I, I heard a story one day and uh, you'll have to ask Mike Compton if this is true, but somebody told me at one of the, I think it was a Nash camp or something. Mike Compton started his mandolin class with, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you all the secret. Are you ready? Shut, shut the doors, go out in the hallway, make sure nobody's out, shut the doors. Come on and come real close. All right, here's the secret. Practice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it, I got to ask him every time I've been around him I forgot to I forgot to ask him that, but I need to ask him if if that's true, but that's really brilliant because that is the secret, man. You just there's no there's no other way. I mean, it's not just going to fall into your head magically. It is important to get the sounds in your head. I do feel like a lot of times people don't do enough focused listening. Uh, and that's been a, been a, I'm a, a huge ear person. Um, and I know that, man, there was one summer here I was playing in nine different bands and still sitting home every weekend trying to make a living in Nashville. But I was, I would have their CDs in my car back when you see kids, CDs were these round discs <laughs> that people would put, um, You'd have CDs in the car of, of whatever show I'm going to play and just have it playing and playing and playing as I'm driving to the gig, as I'm driving around town. And I couldn't tell you whose solo was coming up next until the moment, you know, just before it hit. And then I would know, oh, banjo solo. You know, there's 
oh, it's my solo. Here we go. Um, but I, I just inherently knew it because the material was just hammered into my skull. And I believe that really helps. The other thing that I really don't see as much these days, and this is a, this is a when I was a kid kind of story, but it's true. When I was a youth, we went to bluegrass festivals, and at each festival, we would buy one cassette from one of the bands. That was kind of the thing. We'd take home one cassette. You see, kids, cassettes <laughs> were these square little pieces of plastic. Uh, we would buy one cassette, and we would listen to that cassette forever in our vehicle. That's just what, you know, And we, I'd take it in the house and listen to it. To where I knew everything on there. I knew I could sing you any part on that record. I knew that band. And as I got older, I, I started realizing that because I had done that for so many different groups, some were little dinky groups you'd never hear of. Some were folks like the Bluegrass Cardinals, um, which we were huge fans of. Um, on and on. I had an understanding of the sound of a particular band because I knew what components made it up because I'd listened and analyzed those so much. And I feel like a lot of the students that I work with these days, because of the sort of Spotify single mentality, you learn one tune and then you learn another tune and then another tune, but none of them necessarily come from the same place or the same people. And to where, you know, in a jam session in the, early 2000s you could say all right let's do this one with an lrb groove or let's do this one with a third time out kind of vibe oh man let's let's do this in an early doyle kind of way those are not terribly dissimilar but they are and and if you know that and if you've really digested the flavor of the different sounds of those different bands or even so simple as on your own mandolin can you drop the needle on a bunch of things? If you're a mandolin player, can you drop the needle on a bunch of things and identify the player? Do you know their sound and their style as uh, enough to be able to identify them? Uh, and I was obsessed at one point, and I, I, I for sure could do that with at least ten mandolin players. Um, I just I knew their tone, I knew what kinds of notes they would play, and. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the homework I, I did because I loved it. I loved listening to it, and I was fascinated by it. And that has made, in part, made me who I am today um, because I still listen to all those details, and I'm just, you know, a little bit more of an active participant now. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it's funny you say that about that because uh, Laps in 7 was one of those CDs for me. I used to have a 45-minute uh, one-way commute when I lived in Michigan, and mm -hmm. um, that that Laps in Seven album with Sam was just I list I I there was a time where I was just like I don't think I've listened to anything else for like three months. <laughs> I just I kind of miss those right. days when you know you bought something and that's what you listen to, and I find myself just as bad at you know like if I'm on a walk or working out or just listening to stuff you know I'm start working on something and next thing I know I'm five songs away from what I was just working on. You know, it's tough with that instant gratification stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I also find before you had the thing to stick in the player, whether it's a CD or a cassette or vinyl or whatever. 
and then you you listen to that thing because that's what you had now i'll turn on i i tend to use title i like the platform more than spotify because it's uh number one it sounds better and number two it pays the uh artist more um so title is my my preferred listening thing but i'll turn it on and then i won't think of anything to look for to listen to so i'll just listen to the same thing i've been listening to for last month <laughs> yeah that's great it's just different yeah yeah for sure um so how, so how did the sam gig come up for you was it an audition process how, how did that come about yeah well um it is one of the stories of uh it truly is kind of who you know and and also you got to make sure you show up for every gig um and do your best no matter who's playing with you or who you're playing for i had the chance um i had been touring on and off for a couple of years with randy coors playing guitar or mandolin with him depending on what he needed and singing harmony with him and i was doing I got into singing some falsetto tenor because he's a really high singer and I can't hit those notes in my chest voice. And so I sort of trained into how to do that in his band at his suggestion, actually. And um, Scott Vestal would play a bunch of those gigs. So I got to know Scott that way. Had a chance to uh, sing on a Jeremy Garrett and Glenn Garrett gospel record that they did years ago. And I, that was at Scott's studio. Got to work with him in a in a studio environment. And I am very proud to say I went in and I kicked butt. It was good. It was a very a very good thing. And um, and then Scott actually and his wife made a CD, and um, they hired me to play with them on a few things. So I was already kind of hooked into to Vestal. And then he got the gig in '05. He started playing with Sam. Uh, at the same time, I was basically broken homeless. Uh, uh, Richard Smith, the English guitar player and his wife took me in and I was living in one of their spare rooms at the time. And he had a radio show and it interviewed Sam just before Thanksgiving on his show. And Sam was telling him that his current guitar player was going back on the road with the Dixie Chicks. The, the guy was, um, Keith Sewell. Fantastic flat picker and singer and, and electric guitar player and all that. And um, so when we gathered for, for our friends giving that year, which would have been 05, um, Richard said, oh, man, oh, mate, you need that gig. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, yes, I do. <laughs> I, said, I said, call him, call him and tell me, tell him about me and, and uh, you know, put in a good word. So he put in a good word. I was hanging out a bunch with Sim Daly at that time. And Sam had a Sim do a bunch of work. So Sim put in a good word for me. And then Scott, actually, I, I called Scott and said, hey, man, I'd be interested in that, in trying out for that gig if that was possible. And so Scott passed along my number two. And I didn't really think anything of it or anything would come of it. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of auditions all, all the time. Uh, usually by the time I hear about them, the gig's already filled. But... Um, Sure enough, I got a phone call one day and said, hey, uh, this is Sam Bush. And I thought, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so he, he gave me a list of tunes to look at, which I busted my butt. I came to that 
to that audition completely prepared. I had zero charts. I knew everything from memory. I knew the harmony parts. I knew the lyrics. I knew all the uh, the intricate uh, lead parts that were supposed to be twinned. Um, you know, I, I really busted my butt because I really wanted that gig. And, and it was great. Um, and fortunately, this... I was kind of at the end of my rope with Nashville and the music scene and I was ready to go back home. And, uh, in fact, they, the band teacher where I used to teach, I was the choir teacher. The band teacher was retiring that next spring and they had, had already offered me that my, uh, his job for the following fall. So I, um, so it, in, if things went different in 06, the fall of 06, I would have been back in Massachusetts teaching band. Um, so I was done with it. And, and I had this, this strange sense of peace as I was driving over to that audition. I had this, this thing just come, come through my, my mind. And, and it occurred to me, I, I said to myself, if, if I came to Nashville, and I've played with all these people, played the Opry and different things and done all these things. And now I'm going over to Sam Bush's house to pick with him in his living room. If that's all this ever was for, I'm good. You know, that's that's amazing. What would you give to pick with Sam Bush in his living room? <laughs> I'd give a lot. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. Fortunately, that was my mentality as I went in. I wasn't. I wanted to gig. I busted my butt. I worked really hard. But in the moment where it all kind of came to fruition, I wasn't trying to get a gig. I was just having fun picking with one of my heroes. And honestly, I believe that's that's one of the reasons I got the callback. Wow. So was was it just you two the audition? Yep. Oh my gosh. Yep. Yep. Just me sitting across from him and Hoss and, uh, and you know, it was really cool. We picked some tunes, some, you know, bluegrass standards, and then we dug into some of the stuff that he sent me and, and, um, you know, I did, I did okay, apparently. Um, and then he wanted to show me this one tune that was pretty tricky and he wanted to see if I could play in weird timings and guess what the song was. Laps in seven. That was, yeah, because that came out in the spring of 20, uh, 2006. They were just sort of finishing when I was auditioning. And he wanted to know if I could learn that head. Um, so he taught it to me real quick, and, and I didn't have any problem with it. It made sense enough to me. I had done things in a weird time before. So, um, yeah, and of course then, in typical sandwich fashion, I didn't get a phone call until January, so I assumed that I assumed I didn't get the gig. And I was on. There used to be a website called Monster.com, which would offer jobs, you know. And I was on Monster.com trying to trying to look for work the night before Sam called me for my second audition. I was trying to get enough work to get enough money together to move back to Massachusetts with my fiance and actually we got married we were supposed to get married in um we were scheduled to be married in february of 06 and so yeah all this kind of happened he calls me the next morning and says hey man i'd like to get you in for a for a second audition would you be up for that 
Yeah, of course. So I thought, cool. Hey, I get to go pick with Sam twice. That's awesome. And, uh, and so we got on his website and sure enough, Yana looked at, she said, that first gig is our wedding day. What are we supposed to do? What, what are you going to do? And, and, uh, she's from Slovakia. Uh, we, we met as bluegrass picker. She's a wonderful singer. Um, her parents were flying over and this is like not even a month away. We're going up to Massachusetts. We've got this whole wedding thing planned. It's a very small wedding, but still it's our wedding, you know? Yeah. And, um, so anyways, I said, you know, if he doesn't understand that, I don't want to work for him. Honestly, that's just where I am at this point. I, I, no gig. I don't care what gig you have, That that's just not a thing. And, um, so she was kind of, kind of terrified. She didn't particularly want to move to Massachusetts, but that was where our money could have been. So that was kind of what we were going to do, you know? So, so sure enough, I go to Sam's house, we pick a couple tunes and he go and he leans down and he goes, so you want to join my band? <laughs> <laughs> And he starts talking about the things and it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. And he said, yep. And our first, uh, our first gig is February 18th. I said, I've got a little problem with that date. I'm supposed to get married that day. And he just looked at me and he blinked and he said, no, you're going to get married that day. We'll get a sub. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so I knew, I knew that was the right place for me. And I've been there 16 years. That's so great, man. And you guys are just so good live. We had the uh, the good opportunity to um, open for you guys when you were in Charleston at that uh, uh, Firefly. It was an outdoor gig just kind of right after COVID. And um, oh, yeah. you guys are just so great. Every time I've ever seen you guys live, I'm just floored by not just how great musically you are, but just the vibe that that band, the whole band you know, everybody, yeah. everybody talks about how, you know, Sam is like just this ball of energy and just you're contagious, but it's the whole band. You can feel it. And it's, it's really amazing to see. Totally. Yeah. You know, and uh, he is the epicenter of that. Don't, don't let anybody fool you, <laughs> but, but what he brings to the stage elevates everybody else. And we all have a deep respect for everyone else's musicianship within the band. And it's such a good, it's such a good thing to see. I've, I've played in bands where that was not the case and that sucks. Um, but this is, I know that when I'm taking a solo, everybody else is, is listening to me and trying to help me. Um, and that's, that's just not, it's not always the case. And I, I I'm sort of shocked because when it happens, it seems so perfectly obvious and easy. But, um, you know, and, and everyone is such tremendous players. Chris and Todd are both jazz and, you know, they both have degrees in jazz music and, and classical stuff and whatnot. And they're unbelievable wealth of knowledge in music outside of bluegrass. Um, and they have so much insight. It's, it's really fun sitting around working up new tunes with them because they'll, they'll just come up with ideas that the bluegrass folks never would have thought of, you know. Um, but it, but at the same time, you know, I've got ideas too, and we try those, and it, it's it's a cool collaborative thing, and it's fun. Um, going back to that idea of listening, 
as you listen to your the person who just went before you, you know, if we're going across the stage and, and Wes goes first and he plays something in his solo, I'm listening, I'm listening. If something catches my ear, I might try to duplicate it and send it back to him. Um, there's not really a night that goes by where, where you won't hear somebody play a lick or a, a, a rhythmic pattern and someone else will hear it and repeat it. And then, you know, it'll be in the bass, it'll be in the drums, it'll be in the guitar, it'll be in the mandolin. It, we just sort of listen and react to each other immediately and sometimes in a delayed way where, um, shoot, sometimes half the fun is as Wes is finishing his solo, I will try to play with him at the front of mine. Like I'll start mine where he has left off musically, not just where he stopped, but, but, you know, he'll come down on a line and I'll try to either continue the line or duplicate the line or take the line back up. But, but really a handoff rather than two adjacent solos. That's fun. Yeah. That sounds fun. Yeah. It's, it's real hard. It's real hard, man, because you've got to listen and it's not just on you. Everybody's got to listen. Mm hmm. Um, I know that there was, a, there was a story. I don't know if it's true. I've never met the guys from fish, but, but I would love to someday to ask them if this story is true. I heard that when they started their band years and years ago, they were all college students up in Vermont and they had this signal. They would rehearse and there would be some kind of signal. Whenever that signal happened, they all had to stop and each one had to sing or play something that someone else in the band was doing. Oh, wow. Now think about that for a second. At any given moment, you could get some sort of signal and you would immediately have to sing or play something that somebody else was just doing. What does that tell you about their listening skills? Yeah, top notch. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're training themselves to be that kind of listener. You know, and that's... That's, I don't know if the story's true or not, but it's an inspiration. Uh, and I, I try to play that way. I try to always be listening. And, um, you know, it's something I think I'm very, very good at, the listening component of, of music, um, because I've spent a lot of time working at that. This has been, this is a really inspiring conversation. <laughs> this is just the amount of time and, and um, thought you put in to to what goes on is really inspiring to hear and, and i don't think I'm, as many people talk about the listening aspect of it that's that's great well that was one of my things um for a long time i mean i just i've always been into the listening aspect of it as as a consumer of music uh, and as a performer of music and one of the exercises this is something easy for your listeners to do um take your favorite song and a piece of paper. You have to use a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen. Uh, go to a, some sort of quiet environment where you're not distracted by other humans or pets or whatever, where you can just listen. And take, take the whole track and listen down one time and listen to, you know, say it's a bluegrass album band cut that you're really analyzing. Listen to the guitar, the, the whole first the whole, first time through, nothing but the guitar, only listen to the guitar 
And as you're doing it, write down the order of um, the order of this the song on the left side of the page. So like, okay, kick off verse one, chorus one, banjo solo, you know, whatever the case may be. Write that on the left side and write a little note about what what's the guitar doing. Are they playing a lot? Is Tony playing a lot here? Is he playing a little? Is he playing high notes? Is he playing low notes? What's he doing in each section? And then look at that and see if you can make any sort of calculations about what he might do on another song that was like this. Is there some tendency where, where it's always kind of a low lick in this spot or always a high lick or something like that? Or maybe there's nothing. Then go back through the whole song. Same approach, now pick the banjo and listen. When is he playing up the neck? When is he playing down the neck? When is he playing chops? When is he playing fills? Where are the fills? Are they between the vocal or are they riding around the vocal? Are they actually on top of some vocal stuff? Um, all that kind of stuff. Go through each and every element in that one song. So you will have listened to that one song like seven or eight times. But only listen to one thing at a time. Then look at your piece of paper. After you've written all the commentary about who does what, try to figure out why they do that. Well, the banjo started chopping because the mandolin took a solo. Cool. Uh, the banjo went up the neck because somebody did this. Try to make those, those associations. Then take another tune from that same album, same lineup, and do it again. And then try to compare those. Now, it is a bit of tedious work, but if y'all love music, I'm sure there's a favorite tune of yours that you've listened to a thousand times. Do it, listen to it that way. I promise you'll hear something you've never heard before. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> this is, yeah, I know what I'm doing tonight. <laughs> I'm already yeah, looking at the paper yeah. and pen. Yeah, it's, it's so easy. And it, I mean, you're being informed by the masters. So why not? Why not figure out why they do stuff and really dig in and listen that much? We all sort of listen on the surface of the overall thing and you kind of bounce around to what's going on. But I, I have done this enough that when I'm doing my band coaching, people kind of freak out that I can, can sort of hear multiple things at once. It's not really that I'm hearing multiple things at once. It's that I'm able to switch back and forth so quick because I've done this a lot and i'm able to to know three things that are that are sort of wrong with what just happened and i can fix all three of them and then we can play through it again and then it's suddenly something else and that that just comes from hours and hours and hours of listening hard work right there that's that's again well it, it leads no it leads to success though i think you know that's it's you put in the time this is mandolins and beer, right? <laughs> right, right? So sit back with a good set of headphones, grab your favorite pint, and make some notes. Listen to your favorite song. That's not even work, man. It's joy. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, listen to EMD like 20 times and see what you come up with. I think a great point about that, it's when you, when you listen to it intently, even if you've listened to EMD, for example, 500 times like if you mm -hmm. listen to it like you're saying you are 100 going to find multiple things that you never even yep. noticed on the song you've listened to uncountable times 
I guarantee that on some stuff you're going to find wrong notes that you didn't even know were there. Or you'll hear edit spots or, you know, a, a really good mix will hide some of the recording flaws. And when you listen like that, where you're, you're listening linearly to one instrument rather than um, you're, you're sort of listening in landscape mode when we more usually listen in, in, hor uh, in vertical mode or portrait mode or whatever. Um, you hear things differently when you do it that way. And you'll, you'll just notice more. And I think fundamentally what it teaches you is what your instrument should do in those situations. What do you do uh, when the guitar, as a mandolin player, what do you do when the guitar takes a solo? Do you play different kind of chop chords? Do you play in a different place on the neck? What is the best thing for you to do? Well, I don't know. What did Dog do? What does Sam do? What does, uh, you know, Sierra do? That's the, the real question. Figure out what works for you in your own scenario. I heard a, I had a professor in college that says, that said to me, um, in, in regards to music, if you steal from one person, it's plagiarism. If you steal from everybody, it's research. <laughs> that's, that's great. I've never heard that. Well, I mean, we are, we are what we eat. You, you know, you're, you have the, you have everything that you've heard that you've learned over your life and it's from different sources. And hopefully that can sort of inspire you to go off on your own direction, but it still comes from somewhere. So none of us are playing totally original stuff all the time. It's, um, it's, it's from somewhere. The, the hope is that it's from enough different places that it doesn't sound like an Adam Steffi clone or a Wayne Benson clone or on and on Tony Rice clone, pick a, pick a person. Um, there's validity in learning all of all those people's stuff but the hope is that you have enough other people's stuff sprinkled in that you can really select your favorite parts of all of their styles and that becomes your style one of the things that uh sam had mentioned now this is boy this was just after covid so this might be even too old of a question to answer but one of the things he talked about during the pandemic again where you inspired him was you had done some stuff mandolin wise i think i don't know if you guys were jamming but he said he was really inspired again and part of it was because of some stuff that you had showed him or or um that maybe you guys had played together and i don't know if you recall what he might have been talking wow. about then dang i have no idea but if i inspired sam on the mandolin that's that's a sight. You did. Goodness. Yeah. He definitely made a point to say that. That's cool. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Um, I, I honestly just don't get to play mandolin much anymore and it's, it's my own fault, but I feel like my responsibility is to the guitar for the last 16 years. That's my, that's my instrument for my job. And I need to play that. I need those chops to be up. I don't need my mandolin chops to be, to be up and you know i hate that i've sort of let it slide but uh but at the same time i want to make sure that i'm focusing on on the right thing at this point and um i love mandolin i still do i have two amazing mandolins i have a um a daily 
Oh, I can't remember. Classic, classic, daily classic with a fern style um, overlay and uh, it's all jazzed up. And it has, it got finished just about the time of my wedding. And so it has our wedding date in it, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. Sim and I were good buddies and, and hung out a lot at the shop back then. I produced an album for him and his wife. And, uh, and the mandolin actually ended up being the payment for that record, uh, which is, and he, I spent a ton of time working on that project and, um, and it all wound up really great because I ended up with a mandolin I could never afford at that time. And, uh, and it's something I'll always treasure. It's a really cool one. Um, my other one is a Bush model, uh, uh, Gibson, <clears throat> that I got from Sam and it is varnish. And, um, of course I'm spacing, I think it's an O3, uh, model, but it's a, it's a really interesting one. I always lean towards the chunkier sounding mandolins. I like the low end thud of, of some of them. Um, I'm less drawn to the lore thing. And, uh, th Sam's always known that. And, and this particular one is one that he had dubbed, low boy because it <laughs> it just it's just got more throat than some of the others um and you know it is it is exactly my kind of mandolin that's uh it's got top end but it really has bottom end uh, for a mandolin so yeah i love them and i take them out every once in a while in fact i actually need to i'm gonna be filling in with with becky on a tv show uh later later this month to promote her new album playing a couple songs and I need to dig it out and actually take it in for a setup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just as important as, uh, as woodshedding there. Yes. Oh man. Yeah. Cause it's been years now. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I normally ask the, uh, uh, a question about 10 minutes a day. Like what would you recommend, um, somebody work on, but I think you really covered that in the, uh, I think we've answered that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a great one, but you did mention a pint, when listening do you have a favorite beer you know i i don't really have a favorite beer um i i do not like hops which i know don't crucify me but no. i don't really like hops <laughs> i don't like ipas at all um but i am in the summertime especially i'm way into sour beers i like i like those ones that'll in fact uh, michigan uh, um, we played at the Otis Supply a number of years ago, and they had, it was, oh man, I wish I could think of the brand name of that. It was, um, this is going to sound gross, uh, Blueberry Lemonade oh, Sour no kidding. And it would absolutely turn your face inside out. It was so sour. And I loved every minute of it. I just love sour stuff. I love lemon and lime. And uh, I had a really good rhubarb sour beer out in Denver one time. And I wish I could figure out what the brand name of that was because I'd love to get more of that. So I, I dig that. Also, like, you know, just the standard go-to is like a Blue Moon or something like that. That's that's my easy peasy, nothing, nothing too weird. <laughs> right, right. There was... Um, sometimes bands are, are in, in the studio and bring some beer by and I get to try some different stuff that way. Um, there was one made local called chicken scratch, which I've enjoyed. It's a 
it's an authentic German style um, Pilsner. And um, it really is. It's not like an American version of that. It's a, it's a real one, which is cool. I enjoyed it, it, when I was visiting uh, my wife's country, Slovakia, enjoyed getting to try the real, you know, like Pilsner Urkel from there. You know, if you have it in the Czech Republic, it's a whole different thing than what you drink in a Pilsner Urkel bottle here. Uh, that's good stuff. <laughs> what's um What's coming up with the, uh, what are some of the releases coming out with Dark Shadow here? I know you guys, gr- another great year of releases. Um, and, yeah. Uh, I just saw, I think Laura Orshaw's got a song that was back on top of the charts there, the maybe the bluegrass she's, unlimited chart or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. She's got a number one song. She's been on that chart for eight months and that song has been number one on a bunch of those months. I don't know. Uh, I gotta, I gotta do some research and, and <laughs> figure out exactly where that all it's ridiculous. It's awesome. I'm so proud of that record and, and she's worked her tail off. I just actually got off the phone before we talked. I was on the phone with Rick Ferris. He will be in here. Um, in early December, cutting his third album on the Dark Shadow recording label. And uh, we got some great stuff. He's got some amazing new tunes that he's written and uh, Cracker Jack Band, as always. And let's see. And then um, then later in the month, I'm going to go up and hang out with the Hen House Prowlers. We're going to do um, an intensive few days of rehearsing for their record, uh, arranging tunes, working on their stage show band coaching kind of things as well. And then I'm going to play a, sh- a show with them up in Chicago. Um, I can't remember when that is. I wish I, I'm terrible about that. Um, but they'll, if you follow them, they'll be broadcasting all about it. I'm sure. And uh, they come in the studio in early January to cut their record. And that's going to actually come out in the fall of next year. Um, which I know we're a little little ahead of schedule with that, but they're so darn busy and I'm busy. It it just had to happen this way. So, and then uh, Full Chord is supposed to be coming in uh, in the spring to make their record, a Michigan band. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, we got a couple other different singles that are going to be coming out this year. I'm very excited about my wife. I finally talked her into cutting a couple singles um, back. It was about six months ago now, and we're finally getting getting around to getting them sort of done and, and ready to go out in the early part of next year. So I'm, I'm excited for the world to hear her again after a long hiatus. She used to tour in a band band called Fragment from the Czech and Slovak Republics, and she was the lead singer of that group. They toured for about 20 years, actually. Well, man, it's it's no after talking with you. There's no surprise why you've the, the label's successful and doing well. Sixteen years with Sam's band, you're always super nice. Every time I've ever met you, uh, there's 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 no secret to your success. You work hard and you seem like a great guy. And I, I applaud all the hard work you put into this and and all the success and and continued success, man. That's that's okay. really great. I. I'm glad you could carve some time out to do this, man. This is, it really means a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to chat with you. And I've, I've heard about your podcast for a, a long time and I appreciate being on with you and uh, for you asking some great questions and, you know, I, I love music. I love sharing it with people. That's, that's the thing. Again, my heart is a teacher. I love being able to share all of this with, with folks that, that want to learn more about it. It's fun. And, um, you know, that's kind of, 
how I treat producing as well. Uh, I look at it in kind of the same way, trying to trying to help folks realize something greater than they visioned, uh, envisioned. That's, that's my goal. And, uh, sometimes it works. Sometimes it don't. (laughs) (laughs) Still always fun trying though. I bet. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just get in there and do it and have fun. That's the thing. You know, if you can bring the joy to the music, um, you know, a lot of the other stuff fixes itself. Yeah, exactly. Man. Well, this has been great, Stephen. Thank you so much for doing this. Yes, sir. Great to chat with you. And um, yeah, thanks. uh, Thanks for having me on the show. Hope your listeners get uh, get a little something out of that. Yeah, I'm sure they will. Oh, man. How great is Stephen Mojan? What a fantastic conversation with that guy. Well, there you go. Let's get to work on just digging apart some of our favorite songs. All right, y'all. Thank you so much. If you want to keep up with Steven, go to stevenmojan.com. I'll have links in the description and at mandolinsandbeer.com. Hope you guys have yourselves a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody.